Take a deep breath and let it out. You might not know it, but indoor air quality is a topic that affects all of us. At Renew Air, we're on a mission to educate listeners on indoor air quality and the factors that impact it. Welcome to Indoor Air Quality IQ. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of IAQIQ, Indoor Air Quality and You. I'm your host today, Tyler Kern. Thanks so much for joining us for another episode of the show. Now, today we're diving in and discussing COVID-19 response, building ratings and certifications here on the show. And joining me today to have this conversation is Sarah Nugent. She is a sustainability director at Stephen Winter Associates. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, guys. Happy to be here. Well, we are thrilled to have you along to get your uh, to get your expertise and your analysis and thoughts here on the program today. And we're also joined, as always, by Nick Agopian, the VP of Sales and Marketing at Renew Air. Nick, welcome back to the show. It's good to talk to you, man. Hey, Tyler. So good to be here again. And I'm very excited about this podcast, especially with Sarah. Yes, I'm excited as well. And so, guys, let's dive in. Uh, first and foremost, Sarah, can you introduce us to, to COVID-19 response building ratings and certifications? Just where did they come from and why are they relevant? Sure. Yeah. Um, so most of these programs are kind of subsidiaries of programs that had already existed. So uh, the three that we'll be speaking about today are the Fitwell Viral Response, the Well Health Safety Rating from the IWBI, and then LEADS Program from the USGBC. So um, if you may recall, in the before times... <laughs> These programs existed in in some capacities, right? And during the pandemic, the beginning months, there were very few kind of federal guidance outlined, right, of how buildings should be maintained, how they should be operated, those sorts of things. So these programs were created because of that vacuum, honestly. And so, um, for example, the Well Health Safety Rating, they created a a big board uh, with industry professionals from across the gamut, be they, you know, scientists or um, people focused on the biology of the, you know, virology, things like that, to figure out what the best approaches would be back in like July of last year. So it was, you know, a few months into the pandemic. How do we really recommend folks, you know, what, what can people really do uh because of this pandemic, right? So it was really born out of that need for actual guidance from science and industry-backed um, corporations and, and agencies and such. That's a really good introduction and really gives us a nice framework for the rest of our conversation. And, you know, Nick, this is something that we've talked about on the podcast before, but I think it's worth bringing up again, just that COVID-19 has elevated the the criticality of, of discussing and, and thinking about indoor air quality. It, it, it's funny to say is there something good that can come out of COVID-19? And, and maybe this is something that is good, at least elevating um, the, the topic of indoor air quality. You know, when you, when you look at summertime conditions and you walk into a space and it's hot, you, you turn on the air conditioning or you lower the temperature in order to energize the compressor and, and you feel that cooling effect happening. Conversely, in the wintertime, uh, if you're a little cold inside the space, you just bring up the temperature and your heating system comes on and, and you feel that heat come in. When it comes to indoor air quality, it's very difficult to touch it or to see it or to um, smell it, at least in some areas. I mean, yes, you can smell certain things, but uh, but really the worst compounds you can't necessarily smell. Um, and, and it's always been there, but uh, we haven't been cognizant about it and we haven't been putting in the effort. And we've been talking about deficient indoor air quality since the 
oil embargo in the 80s. Um, but uh, indoor air quality itself today has been elevated because the problems associated to indoor air quality can take 10 years and sometimes up to 30 years uh, to have an impact on our bodies. Uh, some stuff is reversible, some stuff is irreversible, but sometimes it takes a long time. COVID-19 has said, well, what happens in the indoors can happen to you rapidly and very quickly. And it does happen rapidly when it comes to COVID-19. So um, whether it's COVID-19, uh, whether it's another type of uh, SARS virus or anything else that's microbial or chemical or particulate wise has an impact on the physiological operation of the human body. And now codes and standards are starting to reevaluate um, what we have to do indoors in order to make the built environment more resilient. Um, you know, I've said this before on your on your show that um, we need to consider the built environment as a protected space. Uh, what COVID-19 has done is made us run away from the built environment and try to seek shelter somewhere else. And even in our own homes, we weren't protected. Um, so there's a lot of reevaluation. Um, and when we look at minimum code, what does that mean? Uh, and if we maintain minimum code, now we definitely have to entertain higher performing buildings that offer us a little bit more than whatever minimum code was. That's really well put and does a good job of, of touching on a lot of topics that we've talked on uh, and discussed on the podcast over this past, um, you know, uh, COVID-19 era, let's call it, because uh, who knows when it's uh, when it's really going to, to go away. And so this stays relevant for, for a very long time and I think has changed a lot of hearts and minds in terms of thinking about indoor air quality moving forward. And so, Sarah, you introduced us to several of the programs um, earlier. Let's go into a little bit more depth about each of these programs and, and maybe if you could also explain some of the differences that exist between them and how they are unique, each of them. Sure. Yeah. Um, so my background is primarily in the lead program. That's the bulk of the work that we do on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, and so that program is called, well, really, so there's the lead for new construction program. They also have existing buildings, et cetera. And so the USGBC created what they've called the ARC for reentry program but it's rolled into their lead for operations and maintenance program. So it has um, incorporated things related to air quality testing and things of that nature into their ARC reentry if you're going to pursue lead for existing buildings. Um, but the WELL program created by the International Well Building Institute, that's called the Health Safety Rating. And it is on an annual basis where projects would, you know, apply against these five criteria categories, um, be they related to air quality, cleaning and sanitization, um, air and water quality, things like that. Um, and that gets uh, updated every year and submitted to the, the IWBI for approval, right? So that's one program. Um, and then, and that's, again, created by the International Well Building Institute. That's their own third party uh, uh, firm. And then the um, the Fitwell Viral Response Module is actually created by the CDC and the GSA originally, and with help from what's called the Center for Active Design. Um, and so they're the third party team that has helped facilitate the fi the the Fitwell program over the past few years. Um, and so again, the, the you know all of these kind of programs were created based on the COVID crisis, um, but. Now, the International Well Building Institute, if you're, um, you know, familiar with the well program, that's what they created that program. And so, again, they're this third party kind of, you know, 
private corporation while the Center for Active Design, you know, is created by the CDC and the GSA. So government federally, you know, funded that sort of uh, background. But all three programs take into account ASHRAE standards, um, you know, third party science backed, um, you know, air and water quality and things of that nature. So none of them are creating standards just based on what they think is the right idea. It's all third party verified ASHRAE, AIA, things like that. Yeah. So there's not so much that's different, truthfully. <laughs> um, but I think they all are very reputable and they're all similar cost, which is kind of interesting uh, that we found. Um, but yeah, I would, I highly suggest all of them. I don't really have, I don't see too, too much different between the two or the three. But, um, but yeah, they're all fairly robust and holistic in their approach to combating COVID and other, you know, health and safety wellness programs for occupied buildings. Yeah. This might take us, you know, off script and off book a little bit, but is there value in having, you know, all three, you know? Oh gosh. Or is it, or is that overkill? <laughs> I, you just need one I and everyone understands. Overkill. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it would be overkill a little bit because they are, they do cover very similar topics. Um, we're pursuing a project right now under the health safety rating. And we have found that it does incorporate many HR policies, for example, like paid time off um, and like bereavement assistance and having, um, you know, medical leave for bereavement, which is not necessarily something related to COVID necessarily, but obviously we know it's been a tough year for everyone, right? So having those mental health assistance that, so again, not not necessarily what Nick was speaking about earlier with with air quality, but it's still very connected to this crisis. So they do have, um, yeah, fe features and strategies related to things that are kind of more HR focused. When it comes to LEED, you get that certification and it stays with you. But when it comes to the, uh, let's say, as, as the well health safety rating, um, that one requires um, due process to maintain it. It's not a singular um, act that occurs at construction or post-construction, but it's something that, that's ongoing for the life of the building because you don't necessarily own that plaque that's on your building. Is that correct? So, yeah, using the health safety rating as an example from the 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 date that you re received your rating um it's good for that 12 months right so you would have to continually if you wanted to maintain your your rating yeah you would need to continually every year update that and again like update the, the HR policies even if they might necessarily really have changed but um but things like that would need to annually be updated but Similar for the the viral response, the viral response would similarly from Fitwell would also require that. Yeah. And er earlier, Sarah, you mentioned costs. Can you go into a little bit more detail, maybe about what costs are associated with with these certifications? Um. So f let's use the the health safety rating since we we're just speaking to that. So registration and certification fees are combined, and that would be let's just you know the base rate would be forty two hundred dollars. They do allow for kind of caveats. If you're a small business, it's one rate, which I believe is around, I have it written down here, $2,750 would be the small business fee. And then if you're a, a, a well member, an IWBI member, there's similar discounts, like 15% if you're a Keystone member is what they call it. And then there's also a Cornerstone membership. So it's really reasonable. It's not an excessive fee, you know? Um, and then with the, the viral response module, 
their their certification process is kind of interesting. So you first get certified at the portfolio level. They call it, um, they have a little, yeah, the entity level as they call it. So say you're a building owner, you own 50 buildings, you can get all of them certified at that top level. And that would cost um, $500 to register and then $4,500 to get that certified. And then every asset within your portfolio, if you would then want to get that individually stamped, would be an additional $200. So it's a little bit different. Um, but the WELL program similarly has a portfolio approach if you're a big building you know, owner and you uh, have a portfolio of buildings that's over a certain size, you can pursue it in that way and get some discounts. I think I think buildings are going to use this as a differentiating value proposition. I was talking to an individual on an event that they'd like to uh, um, um, they'd like to plan, and they selected a building that does have the well uh, health safety rating. And um, when it comes to indoor air quality, at least to what I'm talking about when it comes to standards, um, is and I believe it's a level two when it comes to ventilation. So they take the ASHRAE standard and they increase ventilation by 60%. And they were convincing me that because of the health safety rating that they had from well, and the fact that they picked the level two, because level one is 30% above standard, um, the level two is like a 60%. So they're selling me on the fact that it's a, a healthier environment inside their space than not. So um, it's not just a certification rating, but I think it's going to be used as we start conducting business um, indoors moving forward. And at least I experienced that in this one place that I was uh, um, discussing with this venue. That's really interesting. So uh, one of the things I, I wanted to move on and ask then, Sarah, is is just um, can you give us an idea of who these programs are really for and what types of customers do you see pursuing these um, these certifications and these ratings? Yeah. So currently, um, the project that we have in our portfolio is actually an architect's office. Um, it's, you know, for, for their reentry, for their staff. Um we we have had some bites from other teams. Um, uh, one was for a financial services office, um, and one was for actually a corn shell building. Um, unfortunately, you must be operational to pursue them, so you can't be currently in construction, which is a little unfortunate because they were really interested in the program, but they just weren't weren't eligible. So the building has to be fully occupied. Yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah. Exactly. If you are pursuing well certification. You can do it in tandem, but they have the timing has to be right. You know, they have to be finishing construction and moving into operations. Um, and this project just wasn't there at that that moment. But yeah, they all are for reentry. Um, these these programs, yeah, which is why it was lead for existing buildings and not lead for new construction that the USGBC used, right? But but yeah, so I would say you know there's it runs the gamut. You know, like Yankee Stadium is well health safety rated. Um, a lot of TD bank offices are well health safety rated. Um, and, um, but again, you know, we're pursuing it with this architecture firm because they know it's the right thing to do for their staff to show that they're doing the right things for their safety. So I think it does run the gamut between small businesses and, and large facilities like, 
like Yankee Stadium. Um, I think also the Red Sox are also, I think they're also <laughs> certified. Well, <laughs> or, well yeah, one rated. of those teams does the other obviously has to do as well. Otherwise, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah you just, you can't, you can't have that. You can't have one no. getting a leg up on the other. That's just, <laughs> yeah. that would be unacceptable. So, um, so tell me about Stephen Winter's uh, associates response as well. Uh, what sorts of standards are you adhering to um, within your own facilities and that sort of thing? So, yeah, we so we created a committee back last summer, similarly ch- trying to figure out what the heck to, to tell folks is right, the right thing to do and really make sure that we're providing um, a coordinated effort. Um, so we've definitely been recommending, as Nick was saying, increased ventilation where you can. Um, but obviously, there's going to be an energy impact. So we're always trying to get folks to be cognizant that there is this inter, you know, the, the counterplay, counteracts, I, you know, the interplay between <laughs> increased ventilation and, and energy use, um, but also dilution, right? So the LEED program has always emphasized increased MERV filtration at all air intakes. Um, so we have always advised that projects do at least a MERV 13. And that, as everyone knows, has now become the real standard to, um, to try and you know, filter as much of the viral particles as possible. Obviously, if you can do more, that's great. But, you know, that plus the carbon filtration or the UV lights at the um, the air handlers, you know, those are all different strategies that folks have installed. But we're always recommending the filtration. Um, also, a lot of retro commissioning. We're really trying to emphasize the fact that uh, if you're an existing building, yeah, you're just, your systems may be designed to, to, to provide that amount of ventilated air, but you know, it's been 10 years. How, how's your air handler actually running? So we've definitely been recommending, um, to going in and doing that. Um, you know, we're based in, in the New York city, New York state region, and there are a lot of incentives now actually to to analyze your HVAC systems for, um, for air quality. I know NYSERDA has a program, for example, so we've been really emphasizing that. And Nick, obviously, you know, we, we heard Sarah talking a little bit about just that, um, that, uh, something that we've talked about quite a bit on the, on the podcast is that increasing ventilation, but also balancing that with, with energy savings. Um, just talk a little bit about ERVs and, and something again that we've talked about on the podcast before, but I think is always worth bringing up in, in conversations like this. Absolutely. It's interesting when you take a look at the energy profile of a building, um, and what you realize notwithstanding hospitals, but if we take a typical building, um, the HVAC system is the predominant energy hog uh, because you're having to cool that building, you're having to heat that building, humidify, dehumidify, whatever the case may be. When we take a look at just the HVAC energy costs, the outdoor air um, control or conditioning is a major portion of that amount because Buildings today are becoming tighter and tighter and tighter. Um, we've got incredible um, uh, advancements when it comes to construction methodology and, of course, insulation. Uh, we used to think that it had, insulation had to be heavy. Now we know that it doesn't have to be heavy. And, and, and when we look at the skin itself, the amount of uh, energy loss or energy gain, depending on what season you're in, um, is probably at the lowest it's ever been in the history of the built environment. But when it comes to the outdoor air 
Uh, outdoor air can be anywhere between 40% to as much as 70% of your plugged load of your HVAC system, uh, depending on where you're at. And of course, in Minnesota, it's in the winter season and in, in Miami or in, in Texas, it could be the summer season because you're having to dehumidify. So when you double the amount of outdoor air or add even just 30%, uh, per well or 60% or, you know, ultimately to the point where you're doubling that amount of air, your energy costs will just go through the roof. More importantly, the size of your HVAC system, if it's a new project, is just going to double in size and, and increase your capital costs. And the size of your mechanical room goes up and it just cascades all the way across. And if you're an existing building and you're having to add 30% more or 60% more, your existing systems won't be able to handle that additional load. So the only thing you can do is look at some kind of energy recovery. You've already brought in that air. You've cooled it, humidified it, dehumidified it, whatever the case may be, and heated it. So you've spent money in manipulating that air, but then we just throw it out because it's stale, because it's contaminated, it's got impurities in it, or whatever the case may be. But we throw it out with that money that was spent to to uh, to condition it. So why not recapture that energy? And that's where energy recovery technologies um, come into play to be able to help. Number one, make sure that the energy profile of the building will conform to standards or codes. Um, and in turn, make sure it's economically uh, justifiable for the building owner or the renter to be able to operationalize accordingly, or else it becomes extremely expensive. Now, of course, the type of energy recovery you use becomes another critical decision because not all energy recovery devices are treated the same way. Some have more bypass and cross-contamination than others. So that becomes a critical question the building owner and the consulting engineer um, have to answer and make sure that they, uh, the, they select the type of equipment that would offer them the lowest level of what is dubbed as EATR, which is exhaust air transfer ratio. It's how much exhaust air do you bring back into the space? And of course, the lowest possible or near zero is, uh, is the best. So now that you've been able to recover that energy, you're able to operationalize accordingly. And when we take a look at energy recovery technologies, um, when you look at a typical um, application, commercial application, you're talking about paybacks in less than three years. So even though you're spending the money up front for an energy recovery device, it doesn't just get blown away because there is an actual payback. And if you look at a typical building that can last 25 years, yes, you're paying it back within the first three years. But every year after that, it costs you zero because you've recovered that energy. And of course, your operating costs go down as well. And everyone loves it when costs go down. It's a good thing. It's a very good thing. Yeah. Uh. But I do want to I do, I do want to say one additional thing, Tyler. That um, um, and and Sarah hit the nail on the head with that. Of course, you're going to be and and this is really critical. And I'm I'm just repeating what Sarah said because it's important. Um, you're using a, a certain amount of outdoor air. If unless you're using 100% outdoor air. Uh, meaning it comes in and then gets pushed out, you are going to be recirculating some air. And whatever that recirculation, whether it's 50% or 70%, or even if you're just recirculating 30% of that air, 
that air itself has to be filtered. And I, and, and I can't reemphasize enough the criticality behind that MERV 13 filter that Sarah, uh, talked about. I, 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 uh, I know for a fact that the costs for MERV 13 filter are, are not that high and the energy impact or the additional static pressure, um, uh, as we discussed in the previous podcast is not that high. Um, so minimally, MERV 13 filtration should be added in concert with the increased outdoor air. Uh, don't do one without the other. They, 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 they go to, they, they come together. And, and when they do come together, uh, I think that's the optimal system. And whether it's MERV 13 or whether it's UV light, I mean, this is something that the consulting engineer would have to evaluate, but minimally that MERV 13 should be put in. Thank you for bringing that up, Sarah. Sarah, I see you agreeing. Is there anything that you want to add uh, to, to what Nick said or just give it a big thumbs up? I'm just thinking about this one project in specific <laughs> that they're in SDs and they're talking about 30 CFM per person. And, you know, they're going to have a dedicated outdoor air unit and they're they're talking about maybe electrification, you know, doing the right thing from a carbon perspective. But 30 CFM per person, all electric, it's going to, I don't I don't know. <laughs> I just don't know what that's going to end up costing, right? But but it's the right thing to do in a post-COVID era, right? Like, it, you don't really have a lot of choice in terms of how much fresh air we provide. It's it's the right thing to do. 30% maybe, 30 CFM maybe will be a little bit, maybe we'll be able to tap it down a little bit. Uh, you know, I, I looked at, it's interesting um, that you said 30 CFM per person because I look at the Harvard, we cite the Harvard study and we take a look at the cost per person um, over a year. Um, you're talking about 10 to $40 per person to double the amount of outdoor air below, uh, above standard. Uh, so that's maybe up to uh, 20 CFM per person or something along those lines. To go up an additional 50%, um, I think if you do apply some some level of energy recovery, um, it's, it's, I think, economically justifiable on both the capital cost and the operating cost. Um, as, so as long as they have some level of ERV within your DOAS system, I think it's going to be golden. I think it's going to be an amazing space. I'd love to go into we'll it. We'll make them do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So to that end, um, Sarah, how can firms like Stephen Winters Associates assist in these sorts of programs and in these endeavors? Uh, talk us through what, what you guys do and how you are uh, helpful in, in these particular uh, cases. Definitely. So, uh, you know, just thinking again about that project that I was saying with the 30 CFM, you know, we want to be brought on as early as possible, you know, in concepts and prior to SDs, you know, and, and oftentimes, sometimes, you know, lead can be an afterthought. These rating systems aren't provided in the underwriting of the project and they they know it's the right thing to do, but maybe they're not paying for it up front. But that is definitely our biggest recommendation is bring us on early. We do energy, you know, early energy modeling, what we call simple box modeling. We run IDP shreds, integrative design process shreds to, to talk about all these things, your health, your wellness, sustainability, carbon, and really talk about how these things can be integrated for low or no cost. Um, and obviously we've always found that bringing these design elements on as early as possible prevents VE from happening. It really, you know, builds them into the, the cost of the project from the get-go. So we highly recommend bringing us on as early as possible. Um, so that's from, from a new construction standpoint. Um, but from an existing building standpoint, you know, with these different um, rating systems that we've been discussing, 
you know, having them be aligned with the retro commissioning that we spoke about earlier, or, you know, if you're doing any energy auditing, ASHRAE level one and two audits, maybe it's for your local jurisdictions, you know, in New York City, for example, we have jurisdictional requirements for energy audits and retro commissioning and benchmarking. So it can really fold right into those sustainability um, and energy uh, local laws that you may be required to do. So we would definitely recommend that as well for those existing buildings projects. And just to kind of talk a little bit more about Stephen Winters Associates, y- y'all have a long history of uh, of doing things like this, right? E- evaluating and consulting on various building types um, of all kinds, right? So this is not, while COVID is something new, this is not something new for Stephen Winters Associates. Right. Yeah, exactly. Actually, next year we'll be celebrating 50 years, which is very exciting. Um And, you know, we've really run the gamut from what we provide. Again, so I'm in the new construction commercial arm, but we do multifamily, municipal. We also have a really robust accessibility department. So we really just try to help buildings be better, right, across all all aspects. But, right, not not just specific to COVID. We've been doing this now for a long time. Since since, um, Leeds' inception, uh, Stephen actually was on the USGBC's first board of directors back in 99, 2000. Very excellent stuff. Excellent, excellent stuff. And, and this is also something where, um, because of the expertise and the time that you have in the industry, uh, you as a, as a total group, uh, Stephen Winters Associates, um, you've really refined the system quite a bit and, and taken a lot and, uh, been able to apply it, right? Whether it's energy savings or O&M costs, all of these sorts of things that, that, that are important to bring up when we have conversations like this. Yeah, definitely. And now, you know, uh, to take a step back from the COVID discussion, you know, obviously there's the the climate change discussion too. <laughs> um, and, you know, with everything moving towards net zero and, and how do we really get there, um, that's been a, a huge focus is really balancing health and wellness um, alongside these overarching carbon goals, um, knowing that ASHRAE is moving towards net zero and really how can a, how can um, dense urban environments truly be net zero. So that's definitely been a, a big, a big uh, point of discussion and research for the firm. Yeah. Across the past few years. Yeah. Well, this has been uh, just an awesome discussion. It's been fantastic having you here on the podcast today, Sarah. Um, so before I kick it over to Nick for his final thoughts and to wrap up this episode, is there anything do you want to leave our audience with here today uh, before we sign off? You know, uh, this past year has definitely been a challenge for everyone, but I think that we've, really understood how folks use buildings and also rely on the communities that have been, you know, doing the research and understanding how, um, how A, you need that social interaction too, but B, you know, really trying to stay healthy and um, emphasizing a safe, safe building environment. So that, that count, you know, that, the interplay of those, of those elements there. Um, and just happy to be here. Really, thanks so much for the invitation, Nick and Tyler. This has been excellent. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I, Sarah, it was fantastic getting your insights here on the podcast today. Nick, you always do such a good job of kind of synthesizing everything down and, and giving us a good final word and final uh, statement here on the podcast today. So take it away. The floor is yours uh, to wrap up this episode. Uh, I Something came to my mind just now based on what Sarah mentioned, uh, which is... Uh, measure three times and cut once. I think Sarah hit the nail on the head. Get organizations or companies like Stephen Winters and Associates engaged up front. 
This is kind of like measuring three times and cutting once. Because once you go down the path, going backwards and re-engineering and redesigning becomes extremely, extremely difficult. So um, I'm not going to call Stephen Winters a company anymore because at 50 years, and by the way, congratulations on that, Sarah, and to Stephen. But at 50 years, I was told you're no longer a company but an institution. And I'm, I don't know anybody better than Stephen Winters and Associates because it's not just a consultant firm. I mean, yes, they understand standards. Yes, they understand codes. But more importantly, uh, when I think about Stephen, I think about his knowledge on technologies and everything that's out there and the applicability of different technologies um, within uh, what we call the new industry or the new world order today. And and what's interesting is that when we look at COVID-19 or we look at indoor air quality in general or how the human body is going to react within this built environment, um, there isn't one silver bullet. And, and Sarah hit on this. Um, yes, it has to do with ventilation. Yes, it has to do with filtration. Of course, we need energy recovery to rationalize and justify um, the increased uh, ventilation to make sure that it's economically acceptable by everybody. But at the end of the day, it's a systems approach to everything that we're looking for, whether it's going to be a, a new project or an existing project um, that uh, was called retro. What was that, uh, Sarah? Well, I've, retro commissioning, but retro commissioning, I love that. But that's yes, part of the HVAC, right? You retro commissioning the HVAC, yeah. Yes, retro commissioning <laughs> the HVAC. Um, it's it's interesting, um, uh, Tyler, when um, the space shuttle is behind the Earth, uh, away from the sun, uh, we're having to 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 heat that, or the space station, we're having to heat it. Uh, when it comes in front. Um, and you've got the sun hitting it, um, we, uh, we have to cool it. Um, and it's the same thing here on Earth at night or, or different seasons. We have to cool or heat these structures. And, and we call them HVAC systems that are in a basement, in a closet, or up on the roof. On the International Space Station, it's called a life support system. And we have to say to ourselves today, as we move forward, it's not just a fan that's sitting in the corner that we have to forget about. And Sarah also mentioned that we have to go in, we have to take a look at it, we have to monitor these systems. And of course, we have to maintain them. Yes, maintain them. I go to some places where people have filters in there that were installed back in the 90s. It just doesn't make sense. So we have to maintain them because these tight, tight structures, especially when we get into passive house or when we want to get to net zero or challenge 2030 for architects to achieve net zero will require the building envelope to be super tight. At that point, it's not an HVAC system. It's not my heating. It's not my cooling or that thing that makes noise. It's a life support system. And we have to look at it that way if we want to improve how we react with the built environment and make sure that we're healthy and safe as we move forward and we reopen up businesses. Very well put. Very, very well put. Sarah Nugent, Nick Agopian, y'all, thank you so much for joining us here on Indoor Air Quality and UIAQIQ. It's been a fantastic episode, Sarah. Thank you so much for bringing your insights to the podcast. Thanks very much. 
Absolutely. And everyone out there, thank you for tuning into another episode of the program. We appreciate it very much. Of course, stay tuned for upcoming episodes. Make sure to follow along on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to stay up to date with the latest conversations that we're having around the world of indoor air quality. Like we said at the beginning of the podcast, it is a crucial time to be explaining and discussing this, and I think it will continue to be long into the future. So thank you for joining us for another episode. Stay tuned for more. But for this episode, for my guests, Sarah Nugent and Nick Agopian, I've been your host, Tyler Kern. Thanks for joining us. 